Turn with me in your Bibles not to Mark chapter number 10. We'll read our text verse this evening, and then we'll pray over these requests. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord with you. Amen. Yet, I don't know if we'll be able to handle those kids going over so early. It's going to be awful quiet in here. Amen. Y'all are going to fall asleep before the preaching even gets started. And uh, we can't have that. But uh, I, I want to say how much I appreciate all those that work with our young people. Those that have committed to work with our youth conference, as uh, Brother Jim said, we'll be meeting with you on Sunday and sort of doing a division of labor and giving you an idea of where we can, can use you and what a blessing that will be. Pray for our Sunday school graduation. Uh, and if you've got little ones especially, be sure they're here and uh, and present and participating in that. I'm excited about it, looking forward to uh, another year and uh, what God's going to do in it. We never know what a year's going to hold, do we? We sure wouldn't have thought, uh, at this time last year, we sure wouldn't have thought that this year would look the way that it does. But I'm thankful no matter how it looks that God's faithful. Amen. His faithfulness has not changed. Mark chapter number 10 tonight. Let's begin reading in verse number 32. Mark chapter number 10. Verse number 32, the word of God says that they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Matthew's account tells us that the Father is the one that makes that decision. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know not, or ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing it is to get to be in your house. So many places we could have been tonight. And Lord, by your providence and by your mercy, we find ourselves here. Lord, we it's not lost on us the great privilege that that is. I pray that you'd help us, uh, Lord, as we gather around your word to have our hearts attentive unto the preaching of it. Lord, let us have our hearts open to the application of it and the examination of your spirit, uh, Father, that you might be able to work effectually in our hearts and in our minds that tonight we wouldn't have just come and sat as spectators, but that we would have come and been moved as worshipers closer unto you. 
Lord, tonight there's been requests that have been made. And uh, some of them, uh, we might be tempted to say, would be large requests. And Lord, there might be some that even the people that gave them would be tempted to consider them small requests. But Lord, we know that all these things, uh, none of them is is dwarfing unto you. Lord, there are, every bit of them uh, stands on the same ground as far as your power and capability. But, Lord, tonight what we ask for is your will to be done in these things. We won't always understand it, Lord. We as humans admit that and acknowledge it. But we do, Father, also acknowledge that your will is what's best in these things. So we ask that you would administer your will. Lord, give us patience. Uh, Enlighten us, Father, where we might be enlightened, where we might have the knowledge of your reasons. Lord, in those matters that we uh, cannot know, I pray that you give us long-suffering and patience. Give us faith to meet those answers. And Lord, help us as we endeavor in faith to supplicate unto you, to seek you, Lord, uh, to maintain that faith and encouragement that we might see your will accomplished in our lives, that we might be made more like Jesus Christ. Lord, I love you. I thank you for loving us. And I ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to notice with me verse number 37 and the beginning of verse 38. I want us to notice especially a phrase that our Lord uses in speaking to James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Verse 37 tells us that these two men came unto Jesus and they said unto him this, Grant unto us that we may sit one on my right hand and the other on my left hand in my glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not. What ye ask. You know, this is prayer meeting night uh, here at at church, and uh, we don't always preach on prayer, but I do like to sometimes especially focus our attention on this, dare we say mystical? I I almost hate to use that term mystical. In some ways, prayer is a practical thing, but I'd be the first to admit to you that there's more that I don't understand about prayer than there is that I do understand. Somebody help me tonight. And prayer is an activity of faith. And in in that sense, of course, it is mystical. It is something that our human intellect will not always be able to unriddle, will not always be able to compartmentalize. And these two men come to Jesus and they make a request from Him. The request, it would seem to them, is a simple, straightforward one that is clearly within the purview of Jesus' authority and jurisdiction. But the Lord Jesus replies back to them a fascinating thing. He looks at them and says, Ye know not what ye ask. Now stop and think about that statement in and of itself. He is not accusing them of not asking. He's not accusing them of not desiring what they ask. He's not accusing them of not having faith in the asking. But rather he is saying that you're asking for one thing, And you intend to be requesting something, but the problem is your prayer is misguided. And point in fact, if I gave you what you asked for, you'd be getting something different than what you truly want. Is it possible, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you it is, the Bible teaches us so, but let me just tempt your intellect by saying, is it possible that we could be praying for things and not even know what we're asking God for? Is it possible we are laboring in prayer and not understanding the full implications of what it is that we're asking God to do? I'd venture to say that the Apostle Paul experienced a taste of that. He prayed and he asked three times for God to remove this thorn in his flesh. And we're not told precisely what that thorn is, but 
we assume it was probably a physical malady. That would seem to be what in the flesh would mean. He's not uh, necessarily talking about carnal behavior or disobedient behavior. But it seems as though he's talking about a physical malady that he has. Spe- uh, you know, commentators have spec- uh, speculated on what that is. And I think there is some scriptural evidence it could have been a malady of the eyes. But what we find from reading that passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 is that, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 12 is that the Apostle Paul was requesting something from God, but he did not know, in fact, the true nature of what he was asking. God's reply to him is this, My grace, Paul is sufficient for thee. And Paul replies to that by saying that if the, uh, he must be afflicted by this malady, if he must be weakened, if he must suffer, that the power of Christ would rest upon him, then he says, I will glory in mine infirmity. He learned through that process that he was asking God for something, and he had an intention in that request, but that along with that request would bring some other things that he had not anticipated, that there would be some things that he forfeited in getting what he asked for. You've probably experienced this in your life. There's probably been times that you thought you wanted something until you got it. Amen? There's probably been times you thought you wanted. Uh, maybe it was a house you were buying or a vehicle you were buying. Maybe it was a job you wanted to get. And you thought that's what you wanted until you got it. And then the moment you got it, you was, you was praying to get rid of it. You didn't know what you were asking for. Now, you might say tonight, and this thought entered my mind, what's the point of the message? What is this to teach us? These two men come to Jesus with this misguided request. What are we to learn from this? Well, can I make note of a couple things by way of introduction? Because I think if we're not careful, we will walk away from this message tonight and walk away from this passage with a wrong impression. Let's notice a few things. Look back with me at verse 35. The Bible says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Now, that's the basic premise of prayer, you understand. We pray because we want God to do the things we desire. Now, there are deeper meanings to prayer. There are deeper purposes in prayer. And that's what's disclosed in this passage and in the rest of Scripture, is that God's doing more through prayer than just giving us what we want. But let's go ahead and get honest about it tonight. We pray because we want things from God. And there's nothing wrong with that. We pray because we desire things. We pray because we feel as though there are certain areas of life that we think would be better were things to be different, were things to be taken away from that circumstance, or were things to be injected into that circumstance. We pray because we believe it matters. We pray because we desire things. And God encourages us to pray for those reasons. Uh, Many years ago, Dr. John R. Rice came out with a book, and it was by far the most famous work that he ever wrote. John Rice was the longtime founder and editor of the Sword of the Lord, and the book was called Prayer Asking and Receiving. And the basic premise of the book is that that's really what prayer is at its heart. Now, let me say there's another side of the coin. God's doing a lot more in prayer than just giving us what we ask for. Let me say that for us, for the most part, what we're desiring to do in prayer is to get things from God. What they desired here was not wrong. I want to be careful with what I preach here tonight. What they were doing was not wrong in and of itself. But what we do learn when we read a little further is that it was misguided. It was ill-informed. They did not know what they were asking. Now, let me notice something with you tonight. Would that be all right? Let me notice what Jesus responds to them. 
Now, remember, Jesus is the Son of God. He never was not the Son of God. He never ceased being the Son of God. He was never less of the Son of God than He has been through eternity past and will be through eternity future. He has always been the Son of God. He's always been God the Son. He's always been God in the flesh. There's never been a moment when He wasn't. So even in this moment, He is God and He knows all things. And listen how He responds. Verse 36, And He said unto them, What would would ye that I should do for you? You know what I find astounding about that? Jesus knows what they're getting ready to ask for. He knows that. He knows that what they're getting ready to ask for is not really what they want. He knows that what they're getting ready to ask for is not really what they need. He knows that what they're asking for and and what they truly would desire are two different things. And He knows that really if He loves them, He should not give them what they're about to ask for. But still He encourages them to ask. Notice, I just jotted down three things that I think are worth note. Number one, notice that he entertains them in their request. Knowing what they would ask, he could have cut them off before they even asked. But instead, he listens. I ought to take a lesson in this as a parent. Sometimes, if you've got a kid who talks as much as mine do, you just reach your limit. Sometimes he'll go to ask for something. I don't even want to hear what it is. I'm just going to impute unto him a certain request, and that's what he'll get. He may There may be times he comes to me because he's hurt, and he gets an ice cream cone instead. I don't know. But there's times that he goes to ask me something, and I just I already know what he's going to ask. I cut him off. I shut him down. I probably, as a daddy, ought to be willing more to listen and to be careful uh, in my communication with him. I ought to be like Jesus here, because Jesus knows exactly what they're going to ask. He could have stopped them. He could have said, James and John, you don't know what you're fixing to ask. Go ahead and just keep it to yourself. You don't understand. I already know what you have need of. I've told you before that your Father in Heaven uh, knows what you have need of. Before you even ask, just go ahead and keep your mouth shut, James. Go ahead and be quiet, John, because there's no reason. But instead, he entertains them in their request. In other words, he listens even when what they're asking for ain't worth listening to. Did you hear me? He listens even when what they're asking ain't even worth listening to, he still listens. Now, why would a man listen to someone when he knows what they're asking for is is to no avail? It's pointless. It's vain. I'll tell you why oftentimes uh, Nanny and Papa are more willing to listen to my son than I am. Even when they know that what he's saying don't make no sense or they know that what he's asking won't come to fruition, they do it because they love him so much. They do it because they love to hear his little voice tell stories and they love to see the expression on his face when he's excited and asking for something. And they, they are smitten with him. And that's why they're so willing to listen. Could it be the reason he listens to us is because he's smitten with us? I notice that he entertains them in their request. Number two, I notice that he encourages them in their request. He does not just listen. He says, what would ye that I should do for you? Knowing this request is going to be misguided. Knowing it is not going to be a proper request, he still encourages them to make that request. Notice a third thing. He instructs them in their request. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, he could have berated them for their selfishness and carnality. I didn't jot it down, but one commentator at length talked about the tact and gentleness that the Lord Jesus uses in this exchange. That he, instead of berating them, he imputes unto them a better intention, a better motive, and uses that to gently chasten their conscience as to how wrong what they were initially desiring and asking for 
was. He transcends things into a spiritual realm and assumes that what they're asking, they're asking in sincerity and selflessness. Not because he's unaware, but because he knows that is the path to their conscience. In other words, he could have fussed at them. Like you or I would be wont to do. We would be wont to say, what are you asking that for? That's selfish. That's silly. That's foolish. What about these other people? Don't you know that's the wrong thing to ask for? Haven't you thought about what this will do to other people? That's what I would have done. That's what you would have done. But that's not what Jesus did. He in gentleness instructs them in their request. And you know what that teaches me? This is important. This is just a little introduction, but I want you to listen carefully. This teaches me two things. One, it teaches me that Christ wants us to pray better. There is a right way to pray. There is a wrong way to pray. Let me say that the right way and the wrong way to pray have much less to do with the substance of our prayer than it does the spirit of our prayer. Now, that's not because the substance of our prayer does not matter. We need to be asking for the right things, but it's because it is the spirit of our prayer that tempers and informs the substance of our prayer. In other words, if I have a right spirit with God, if I want the right things, meaning if I want what He wants for my life, that's going to change what I pray for. It's going to change how I pray, the fervency with which I pray, and what I'm willing to do when I get an answer to my prayer, be it something I like or be it something I don't like. You see, He wants them to pray better. Your prayer life and my prayer life can probably be better than what it is. Now, I'm not just saying it can be broader than what it is. I'm not just saying it can be bigger than what it is. That's probably true uh, of your prayer life. I know it's true of mine that I ought to be praying more. I ought to be praying for longer durations of time. I ought to be praying over more things. But that's not what I'm talking about here. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying we ought to pray better about what we pray. But you know, there's a second truth I can't help but notice here. If all He wanted was for them to pray better, And he did not desire to hear their prayers unless their prayers were what he believed they ought to be. You know what he would have done? He would have cut them off. He would have said, don't even bother. Come back to me when you can pray better. But he encourages them. You know what that tells me? Christ wants us to pray better, but Christ wants us to pray even when our prayers aren't perfect. You know what that means? That means spirituality in prayer is what we ought to strive for. But silence as regards prayer ought to be something we avoid at all costs. Pray even when you don't know what you're asking for. Pray even when what you're asking for you're not sure about. Pray even when you don't know how to say it the way that you wish you knew how to say it. You know the New Testament, Paul talked about what happens when we do that. Uh, Paul talked about the fact that when we don't know what we ought to pray, that the Spirit itself helpeth our infirmity and maketh intercession for us with groanings and utterings which cannot be discerned. In other words, when we're praying and when we're asking, can I remind you the Spirit of God did not indwell believers at the time that James and John made this request? What happens when you and I pray and our prayer is not what it ought to be? Well, the Spirit of God comes along and He guides our mind and He guides our conscience and He guides our heart and He guides our intellect. And then when we've still got a mess of things, He takes it and uh, he molds it and he shapes it and he dresses it up and he makes it what it ought to be for the heart and mind of God. You know what Paul said about that? said that he uh, that knoweth the mind of the Spirit uh, maketh intercession for us. In other words, the Spirit of God that dwells in you and dwells in me knows what we really need 
knows what the, what we really are asking for. Because there's times that I ask for something that I'm not really asking for what I'm asking for. Because I don't know enough. I'm not bright enough to know how to ask it in the right way. There's times I, I want a result, but I don't know the steps to get there. But He knows my heart. So He takes that and He makes it fit for the heart and mind of God. I'm saying this before we even preach tonight. You ought to always pray. The Lord Jesus told parables to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. We ought to continue and persist in our prayer life. And there is a temptation, if you're like me, to not want to do things for God unless I can do them right. But can I clue you in on something? Uh, We can't really ever do anything up to His standards. So we ought to go ahead and do it the best we can. I'm not saying we have to do it. I'm saying we do it the best we can and let God straighten out our mess. So when the Lord Jesus replies to them and says, you know not what you ask, he in doing this is seeking to reveal some things about the nature of their request. And I'd say even further about the nature of prayer itself. Why is it or how is it that we could ask God for things and not really know what we are asking? Well, I think we find three uh, examples of that in this passage that I think are worth noticing. Look back with me at verse number 37. The thing that they ask him is this. Grant unto us that we may sit one on my right hand and the other on my left hand in my glory. I've always sort of chuckled when I read that because I've always thought, I bet they had different opinions as to who would sit on each side. They probably just didn't talk about that. (laughs) They probably learned that the pathway to harmony was not to get too detailed about the plan. Because I'm betting they both probably wanted to sit on his right hand, that being the place of greater prominence. But there's two brothers, and they're willing to leave that detail for him to sort out. Isn't that just like us when it comes to prayer? God, I want exactly this, but I'll let you choose what color. I'll let you choose what the trim is on. You know, Lord, I, I'm fine. I, listen, you, you, you give me that sixty thousand dollar truck, and you can pick out what color the upholstery is. God, I'm leaving the choice with you. You know. But they ask him that they can sit on his right hand, on his left hand. Listen to what Jesus replies. He says unto them what, what we've emphasized, you know what not what you ask. And then he says this, can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Now, notice first off with me the simplicity of their request. They were clear and simple in their desire. They believed Christ perfectly capable of bestowing this glory upon them. After all, it was his kingdom. He spent that three and a half years speaking often about a kingdom. And one of the great disconnects between the disciples and Israel and Christ himself was a concept of what that kingdom meant and how that kingdom would unfold. You know, it's possible for people to be saying the same thing and talking about two different things. And so Jesus would talk about the kingdom of heaven. And when he did, he was talking about a literal kingdom. But that literal kingdom was dwelling in a spiritual realm at this moment. It's uh, seated in heaven. That's where the kingdom of heaven is at this time. And his disciples assumed that what he meant was that he was going to set up the the, what we would call the millennial kingdom, what a, a literal, physical, visible kingdom here upon this earth. And the uh, the Romans and the uh, Jewish priests assumed what he meant was that he was going to uh, foster a, a, an insurrection, a revolution against the government, overthrow the Sanhedrin, overthrow the, the Roman government, was going to set up a kingdom. And you know that they're all right. They were all right. And at the same time, somehow they're wrong too. It's true that he was setting up a literal physical kingdom. But that literal physical kingdom was not going to be set up for a long time. It's true that that government was going to displace the Jewish Sanhedrin 
and that it was going to displace the Roman government. But it wasn't going to be that Roman government. It was going to be a resurrected Roman government in the end times headed by the Antichrist. You see, what I'm saying is this. They're asking for something they believe to be simple. And they had every reason to believe that it was simple. And the Lord Jesus replies to them, and He doesn't talk about His right hand, He doesn't talk about His left hand, and He doesn't talk about His glory, and He doesn't talk about His kingdom. He instead talks about a cup and a baptism. What were these cups and baptisms that He was talking about? Well, the Bible talks about uh, the cup in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. The Lord Jesus did. He said, let this cup pass from me. And He was talking about the suffering and agony He was experiencing in the garden and would experience upon the cross. So He was talking about suffering. Earlier in His ministry, uh, John the Baptist talked about and the Lord Jesus talked about baptism as it was a thing of judgment, a baptism of fire, a baptism of the punishment and chastening of God. So it's apparent that He's talking about suffering, agony, and death as a result of the judgment and punishment of God. That's not what they asked about. But that's what he answers. You know what he's saying? You have a desire for something, but you don't understand. And here's the point, if you're taking notes. Often we don't know what is required in our request. They said we want to sit on your right hand and on your left. And he answers, are you ready to drink the cup and take the baptism? Has ever dawned on you that the things that you ask for might cost you more than what you're willing to pay? Has it ever dawned on you? And, and I want to be careful with what I'm about to say here because I, I remember when I was in, in high school, I remember hearing, hearing preachers preach and I sat in a lot of chapel services and things like that. I went to a Christian school and, and you know, they'd talk about the, you know, they'd tell the, these stories about God wrecking people's life to get their attention and so on and so forth. And, and I remember even hearing a man say one time, don't ever ask God to do whatever it takes because he just may do it. And, you know, that sounds good, I guess, to scare teenagers. But can I tell you something? In reality, God loves your loved one more than you love your loved one. God would never do more than what it would take. And we don't have to be afraid of leaving things in God's hands. But I will simply say this. Oftentimes the things that we ask, we don't understand what the path will be to see that come to fruition. We oftentimes, we ask God to uh, get the attention of a loved one and we oftentimes don't know what that path will entail. Sometimes we ask God to further us in life financially or, or, or in station or in position and we don't understand what that path holds and how hard that's going to be. I'm saying there's times that when you pray, you have no clue what is required of you for what you're asking for. Now, somebody's going to say, okay, preacher, that's true. You got me. What do I do with it? See, the reality is they got an answer they didn't want. You know what they wanted to hear? Same thing you wanted to hear. Same thing I wanted to hear when we asked God for that thing. Okay, yes. That's not what they heard. Instead, they are denied their request. I've got a message I've preached on this passage uh, about things that we learn from unanswered prayers. And it's fascinating when you consider all the criteria that we deem to be ironclad prayer strategy that was employed here. They were praying in faith because they had just got through hearing what the Lord Jesus said about being crucified and risen from the dead. Uh, They were agreeing together because Matthew tells us that it was the mother of James and John that came with them and prayed. They came and asked this of Jesus in Jesus' name. I mean, there's a thousand things you could look at. They did everything right and still they heard no. And the reality is that that no was probably the greatest blessing they could have experienced. They had no clue what it would take in what they were praying for. You'll hear no sometimes. I'll hear no sometimes. The question is then, what is the next step for us? 
Do we get angry at God? Do we quit praying? Do we, do we use it as an excuse? You know, sometimes kids, when you tell them no, they'll act out. You know, sometimes Christians, when God tells them no, they act out. They get upset at God. They get upset at the church. They get upset at Christians. They, they pull away. They get mad. They pitch a fit. What is going to be our response? Well, it might do you and I well to understand that there's times that when we ask for something, we have no clue what that path is going to be and what is going to be required of us if we are to see that prayer request answered. I could tell you story after story after story of missionaries that died martyrs' deaths, that prayed and asked God to be magnified in in their body, whether by life or by death, just as Paul did. And, And let me say, I don't think they regret the prayer they prayed. I don't think they regret the decision they made. But I'm saying it could be for you and I that we're begging God for something and He's saying no because He knows what it would cost. And we do not. I think we often don't know what is required in our request. Listen to how they answer him. They answered him like you or me would, probably. Verse 39, they said unto him, we can. We can. Matthew's account, they say, we are able. We are able. And the Lord Jesus doesn't respond the way I would think he would. Now, in the flow of the conversation, you would think that he would have responded and said, nope, you can't. That's not what he does. He answers back, and Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Now, sometimes, be careful how I say this, sometimes I think we give the Bible too much of a break. What I mean by that is this, sometimes we take for granted that the Bible will have a flow and a cadence to it that is unfamiliar to us because it's the Word of God. It's not our language. And I think in doing that, we sometimes miss what God's wanting to show us. It's okay to acknowledge that that seems like a nonsensical reply. You know why? Because what was the point of the first reply if he's going to answer with that reply? If he's going to look at him and say, can you drink of the cup? Can you be baptized? And they're going to say, we can. And he's going to say, yep, you can and you will. Why did he bring it up in the first place? Why didn't he just say, okay, here's what you desire. Here's what you request. You know why that's so strange and unfamiliar to us? Because Jesus is doing something interesting here. I told you at the beginning of the message, he in kindness and gentleness imputes unto them a right spirit and a right motive. They didn't have a right spirit. They didn't have a right motive. But he gives them the benefit of the doubt, even though there's not a shadow of a doubt to him. He treats them in mercy and kindness instead of berating them. You know what he does? He's taking for granted that they understand what he's talking about. And he knows that they don't understand what he's talking about. Can I give you another example of this? I feel like I may have lost you a mile and a half back. You with me? Can I give you another example of this in John chapter number 4? The Lord Jesus is talking to a woman about a well and about water and about everlasting life. And she replies to him, give me this water so that I thirst never anymore. And the Lord Jesus, instead of berating her and fussing at her, changes the subject and begins to talk about that woman's sin. You know why? She said she understood, but she really didn't understand. They say they understand. They say, oh yes, Lord, we can, we can drink of the cup. We can be baptized with the baptism. And I think that they understood that that meant suffering. But they did not understand. And I, I, I jotted it down this way. You know, we often don't know what is the reality of our request. 
Let me explain it to you. Notice first off the ignorance of the request. They spoke of a governmental position in a political kingdom to be set up imminently. They were unaware of what would transpire between that moment and the setting up of that kingdom. You ever had something that you asked for and had you known when you received it what you knew when you asked, you would not have asked for it? We live in a world where things move fast. We live in a world where you can think you need something but not know what's coming down the pike. But you know the good thing about God? God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is inside time and outside of time and emanates through time. And God knows all things at all times. You know, it could be what you're asking for makes sense from where you're standing. But if you were standing where God's standing, you'd know better than to ask for it. You see, here's the problem. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. Now, it's good if we do know that we don't know what we don't know. You ready to get on a train or a plane or in a box with a fox? It's good when we do know that we don't know what we don't know. But you know the problem is oftentimes we don't know that we don't know what we don't know. You know what that you know what that means? We think we know everything. Some of y'all could say this about, especially if you got one or two years on you, you could look back at some of the decisions you made when you were young and think to yourself, boy, if I had known then what I know now, I sure enough would have lived my life differently. You see, from where they were standing and from what they knew, what they said made sense. They said, if it means a little suffering now and I can, I can sit in that kingdom with him then, then I'm glad to do that. But they didn't understand that the Lord Jesus, there was going to be a big swath of time that we're calling the church age that was going to take place between that death on Calvary and that setting up of that literal kingdom. So notice not only the ignorance of the request, but notice the providence of the reply. Christ replies that they would indeed be partakers of his death, though spiritually enjoying a far greater honor than even they requested. The positions they requested, however, were spiritual positions and qualifications, not in nature. And the reason that's important, I'm not saying there ain't going to be a kingdom. I'm not saying there ain't going to be thrones. I'm saying that the way they attained to those thrones was not merely through praying. It was through spiritual development. It was through serving the Lord and living for Christ and laying up treasure in heaven and making their life count. So the Lord replies back, and here's essentially what he's saying. He's saying what you're asking for is not going to get you what you're wanting. You're asking for a position in a kingdom. But at the end of the day, the only way you're going to get that position in a kingdom is if you'll live and serve me and give your life to me right now. Can I simplify it a little bit? Some of you say, I wish you would. We often don't know our true needs. We don't know the reality of our request. We ask God for things that we think we need. We ask God for things based upon what we think we know. But God knows more than what we know. And so sometimes the answer we get is no. And it's not because God doesn't love us. And it's not because what we ask for is wrong. It's because sometimes what we ask for isn't going to get us what we need or what we even really want. Sometimes we ask for things thinking we're correct. And that's perfectly appropriate. I've, I've joked before, although it's only half joking, I've had people say to me, you know, you just think you're right all the time. You've heard that. Yeah, Charlie, I, that's what I answer. I say, well, duh. What kind of a lunatic would you have to be to know you're wrong and continue doing what you're doing anyway? 
There's nothing prideful about believing you're right all the time. You know what's prideful is to believe that you couldn't be wrong. That's prideful. Of course I believe I'm right all the time, and so do you. If you don't think so, ask your spouse sitting next to you. You think so too. But but humility comes in saying, I believe that I'm right, but of course, in matters that rely on my intellect or my intuition, there's possibility I'm wrong. Not as relates to the authoritative truth of Scripture. It's right no matter what. But things that rely on my intellect or my intuition, I could be wrong. I recognize that. You see, it's not prideful to request things believing you're right. That's how we all pray. We all pray and say, Lord, this is what I want and this is what I desire and I think my life would be better if I had this thing. But we have to have the humility to recognize that sometimes we don't even know what we need. And sometimes if we got what we asked for, it would be a great detriment to us. And that's the third thing. Let me mention it and I'll close tonight. Look down at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Imagine that. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. That's the way the world works. Pretty simple, right? But he says, But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. They said, we want, we want to be zoomed past everyone waiting in line. We want to skip the line, Jesus, and just because me and you were buds and I'm your disciple and we've got this relationship, go ahead and put me on your right hand or, or even, Lord, I'll leave the decision with you. You can even put me on your left hand and I'll be okay with that. But Lord, that's what we want. We want to be the greatest in the kingdom. The Lord Jesus replies and says, you don't understand how those positions are, are accrued. They're not accrued by merely requesting. They're given for those to whom it is prepared, meaning those that have earned them. One commentator said it this way, you want a crown, earn one. Do the work, do the service, live for Christ. And undoubtedly, though our salvation is not dependent on anything we do to earn it, the crowns that we enjoy, meaning, and you might say, preacher, I don't need a crown. You'll feel differently about it then because it's not about the crown. It's about what it represents. It's about having pleased the Lord with your life. It's about having something to cast at His feet. Those, those nail-scarred feet. So I'm saying this, that we, they were asking, they were saying, Lord, just, just allow us to have this position. Allow us to be in this place. And his reply back is essentially this. You're asking for it. And if I gave it to you the way that you're asking, you would give up something far greater than what you're receiving. The people that are going to sit in those positions, James and John, are going to be there because they've made themselves the servants of many and they have earned that place. But were I to simply synthetically bestow upon you that glory, that glory would be meaningless. You wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have proven anything. It wouldn't represent anything. It wouldn't please me. It wouldn't please my Father. And in fact, you would have missed what the purpose of all of this has been about, which has been to make you look more like me. I, I, I wrote it down this way. We often don't know what is relinquished in our request. We often don't know what, if God gave that to us, we are giving up. Not just a sacrifice to pay a toll, but I'm talking about what we could have had if we had left the decision with God.
Had James and John received temporal glory in this world in that way, they would have forfeited eternal glory in the world to come. To grant their request would have been to deprive them of the greater blessing. The chief enemy, listen carefully to this, the chief enemy of the best is not the worst. It's the second best. People don't choose the worst over the best, but they often choose second best over the very best. Leave the decision with God. And he'll give you the best, not the second best. Now stop and think about this. You know, we, we've heard a lot of conversation about experts lately, haven't we? You hear it all the time, man. Everybody's an expert till they say something that, that people don't like, then they're not experts, then they're idiots, and then these people are experts. Experts. You know why that word has meaning to us? Because the assumption is that you are leaving the decision with the people who know more than you. That's the very premise of what an expert is and why they have a place in our society. And we have all kinds of experts. We have experts in the medical field, and we have experts in the financial field, and we have experts in the health field. I mean, everybody. You went to a doctor because you trust that doctor has more knowledge than you. That's normal. That's appropriate. That's right. And what you're doing is saying, I could make this decision, but I'm going to leave this decision with that person, and I'm going to take their advice because they know more about the matter than I do. Can I tell you who the expert is on what you need? Can I tell you who the expert is on what's going to make you happy? Can I tell you the expert on, on who's going to be to your greatest benefit and what's going to be to your greatest benefit? It's the God of glory. He knows everything. Everything. So here's the reality. Honest, honestly, we ask for things and we often ask God to do things. But notice the excellence that would have been forfeited. Christ says, if I give you this, I'll be robbing you. I'll be taking something from you of far more value than what I could give to you. I see the excellence that would have been forfeited. But notice also the example that would have been forfeited. I think there's two things we need to say about verse 45. Notice it with me. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, he serves as an example to us. And we can look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see what prayer should look like. We preached a few months ago on, on the model prayer, and it wasn't there in John 17, and it wasn't there upon the, uh, the Mount of, of Olives, but rather it was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the Lord Jesus prays and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. He left the decision with the father. And it prospered him. It blessed him. It benefited him. It's not that he didn't have desires, but it's that those desires were never for a moment disharmony, uh, disharmonious, excuse me, with with what the father desired for him. He is our example. But can I make a second application of this verse? I'm not even making an application. I'm just noticing something. What I notice here is this. We never look more like Christ than we are when we are selfless and submissive to the will of God. He says, you ought to be seeking to advance by being a servant. You're praying and asking me to give you this, but instead you ought to just leave the decision with me. And in doing so, I'll give you far more than you could ever ask for. And he says, you know what the example of that is? Is me. I've come so that I can minister and give my life a ransom to many. And he's essentially saying, if I'll do that and I'm the master, then you're the servant and you ought to do that as well. He's saying, when you pray like that, you look like me. 
So Christ is an example to us of how to be. But you know what that also means? That also means that we are an example to the world of who and what Christ is when we live like that. Can I tell you something? We're teaching our children, those of us that have children, uh, that we're raising at home, and even some of y'all that maybe uh, have some that are grown and out of the house, and some of y'all that have some that are grown and you're still raising, and um, <laughs> we're, we're leaving an example and leading an example unto them. They're watching what we do all the time. They're learning what prayer is by watching us pray. Or they're learning it's not important if they don't see us pray. Or they're learning that prayer is just turning God into a cosmic butler if we get angry when he doesn't answer the way that we desire. I'm saying we are leaving an example. You know, the great tragedy of what James and John asked was that the world looked at them and saw less of Christ when the world desperately needs to see more of Christ. Had they prayed and said, Lord... This is what we desire, but at the end of the day, we don't know. And really, all we want is your will for our lives. So if you'll show us your will, then we'll surrender and submit ourselves unto you and we'll do it. Even if it's not what we expect or anticipate or desire or ask for, what we want above all is your will. And we'll do it no matter what it is. They would have walked away from that scenario looking more like Jesus. Being an example, what does this lead us to? Well, it ought not lead us to less prayer. It ought to lead us to more prayer recognizing that even when we ain't praying the way that we ought to, you know what the Lord does? He says, come on and pray. Come on and pray. Go ahead and pray. I'll straighten it all out. You just pray. You just pray. Best as you know how. Go ahead and pray. But in as much as we are maintaining a prayer life, you know what it ought to, you know what it ought to drive us to do? It ought to drive us to say, Lord, I want to pray better. I want to pray submitted to your will. I want to pray surrendered unto you in all things. Not that we pray less. Not that we cease to pray but that we start to pray better, that we start to pray and say, Lord, I may not know what I ask, but you know what I need. Let me surrender unto your will for my life. Let's pray together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. You can come as soon as you're ready. You don't have to wait for the first note to be, uh, to be played. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you for your long-suffering and patience with us. Lord, so often we pray and we ask for things, but we just simply as as infirmed, finite, broken people, we don't know how we ought to pray. Help us to lean effectually upon the leadership of the Spirit of God in our prayer life, but Lord, help us also to be submissive to the answer you give, desiring for your will above all else. Father, bless our invitation time. We ask it in Jesus' name.